You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is On Principle, Challenges in Jewish Education. I'm here with a real great educator and someone that I've come to respect greatly for his writings and his thoughts and his observations, which have always been key to the point. Professor Chaim Seyman uh, from Villanova University of Philadelphia, a uh, professor of Jewish law and contract law, right? Also, right, Chaim? Contracts, insurance, arbitration, and Jewish law. I'm sure tremendous amount of uh, interesting information and wonderful students in a, in a great school. Uh, Chaim, it's on everybody's mind. And I've seen so many articles and we've done a number of programs about it here on our platform. So let's, let's get straight to it. Perhaps by the time people listen to this, it'll have been moved even further in terms of what the Supreme Court is going to do. But the opinion, the majority opinion that was, I think, written by Justice Samuel Alito, overturning Roe v. Wade. I know you told me you don't teach constitutional law, but you have looked at the opinion. And I would assume that in many law schools, this is probably just like in the world at large, people are talking about it. But, but as you, as someone who's a professor of, of law, someone who understands this area, it's almost like this is your bread and butter. I know not the constitutional law, but just talking about opinions coming down and the change and what might happen. So talk a little bit about your observations and what you think about what Alito has written and how important it might be. Sure. Well, thank you. And uh, it's great to be back. So let, let's just, as I said, I don't know when this will play, but as of today, let's just clarify. This is a leaked draft opinion written by Samuel Alito that suggests that it may become uh, the opinion of the court. Whether that was going to happen by itself or whether following the leak, things will change, I, of course, don't know. So it is, um, you know, the, the document that was posted is sort of looks like, you know, the way the Supreme Court publishes things. Uh, and was authenticated by John Roberts, the Chief Justice, as, yes, this is what uh, Alito had circulated. But beyond that, we don't know much, whether, you know, what, what will actually happen, whether votes will change as a result of this, or whether the, it, this will be the majority opinion, but it will change. All these things are possible, and I would even say likely to some degree or another. So let's just sort of start there. As as reported in the press, this is quite rare, certainly on a case of this magnitude, this sort of leak. Uh, there's speculations by every side, uh, of course, showing who leaked it. One could basically pick their own favorite conspiracy theory to see who this helps more and who this helps less. You know, there's an argument to me that it was leaked by the right. There's an argument to be made that it was leaked by the, by the left. There's even an argument to be made that it was leaked by someone close to John Roberts, uh, sort of the center, at least on this issue, in order to, to move things in, in different ways. So, you know, I obviously don't know anything about that. As you said, uh, Roe v. Wade has been at the center of that sort of intersection between law and politics for roughly 50 years now. And, you know, thinking about why that is, how that is, how that's changed, and sort of what may happen in this opinion is interesting. One reason that this takes up so much space and we'll start maybe from the constitutional doctrine for a moment and then look at the politics, is that there is nothing in the Constitution about a right to an abortion. And this was interpreted or created or made up, depending on your views, from 
a sort of implicit sense that there are unenumerated rights in the Constitution, meaning that there are things that are baked into either certain capacious phrases like due process or equal protection, or just in sort of the way that things are sort of structured in the Constitution that even if they're not there, need to be there. To some degree, everybody agrees with this. For example, the Constitution does not give anyone the right to marry, but we would say that that is a right in the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't say that parents have the rights to raise their children, but we would, of course, say, and everyone would agree, that that is a constitutional right. Where it gets dicier is questions that are unenumerated, and the way the court, certainly the conservative courts, have thought about this is, and have not been part of a long-standing tradition of the American people or the common law people. And this is the argument of where Roe fits in. I think it's worth uh, reviewing and hazarding one basic point. What does it mean to call something a constitutional right? I think the easiest way to think about this is, what rights do we say that even if the state, local, or federal government passes a law to take that right away from you, that law is invalid? So saying something is constitutional is pulling it out of the realm of political debate and political possibility, by which I mean the ability of a arm of the government in any of its divisions to take away from you and say this is outside politics. So I don't care if the governor, the mayor, the legislator, the Congress said you can do this. To say it's constitutional means that we're not going to do it. So when we're talking about constitutional law, constitutional rights in this sense, we want to say what things should be outside of politics, and then who decides if they're outside of politics, and what is the mechanism to decide whether they're outside of politics. So I think starting there will help us get to this uh, row question a little bit better. So in a way, it's almost like it's not in the Constitution. But because there are certain things which I guess are inalienable or un- unable to touch, those things are beyond enumeration because they are so, if not self-evident, they are the essence of what it means to be a true free human being. And therefore, any sort of legislation, as you say, cannot be pogea in that, which is wild, that it's not in the Constitution, but it doesn't have to be because this is, this is what it means to walk as a human being on this earth. And that is exactly the issue, right? So less man de public, that if a state passes a law mimicking the, uh, the old kibbutz method, that upon the child reaching three months of age, the state shall come and take the child and raise it in a Beit Yeladim. So the constitution doesn't say anything about parental rights. And yet, nevertheless, I think nine justices on the Supreme Court would say, no, 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 that state or local or federal law is invalid. And when pressed, why? Hey, there's no place in the Constitution that says that. They would say that this is a longstanding right that existed at common law, which is you know, going back even before the founding and certainly of the founding era. And what they would do is that they would point to many, many sources in law and possibly even in culture that affirm the right of parents to raise their children as they see fit, leaving aside exceptions right now, right? Let's say it's very blunt law. And therefore you say, though it's unenumerated, it's sort of woven into the fabric 
of the legal order and was assumed to be part of the inherent constitution, using that in a different sense, of what it means to be a human, as he said. Where the debate centers around Roe, and we could talk about some other cases that may be in that vein, is things that were not longstanding traditional rights, where those fit in. And I think this is one of the places where liberal and conservative jurisprudence diverge and diverge most directly. Conservative jurisprudence says, okay, if you want to add rights into the Constitution, then the Constitution has a method to do that, and that's amendment. And therefore, go and politically advocate under the procedures within the Constitution itself to get a abortion amendment. And if you do, great, it's part of the Constitution and no debate about that. But if you don't, it is not. And the liberal jurisprudence says that this is too wooden a way of thinking about it, that societies evolve, cultures evolve, and laws evolve. And the understanding of what rights people have that the government can't touch cannot simply be reduced to a historical test. They also complain that the historical test itself is not determinative, that one can read histories selectively in different ways and at different levels of generality, and that it doesn't really answer the question. One second. Chaim, we know that one of the great uh, amendments, of course, is the the 14th, right? That was pushed by Lincoln and others uh, primarily which we, of course, would say is now, you know, part of the inherent understanding of what it means to be a great human being. And yet what happened, it was ratified by the states. It was something where the states voted on it and it became placed into on paper. Maybe, again, I'm, I'm just arguing here, taking devil's advocate here, that maybe the, the liberal view is that they wouldn't be able to get it ratified by the states. I mean, we were able to get the equal rights under the law ratified, if it's true that a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy should be ratified in the same way, then let's go through the process and do it. Well, that, that is effectively one of the conservative arguments, right? Which is, right, look, when we come to important historical junctures and we change our views, and I think slavery is, is the obvious, it's maybe even the only example, right? We radically change our views from something that seemed perfectly normal and humane at one time. And then we fought a war and and right there's a new constitution, so to speak, a new way of constructing the country. Then this is the way you do it. You pass an amendment. And the failure or the inability to pass, forget about abortion amendment, even the equal rights, is evident that that's not where the country is at. And therefore, to impose it via judicial fiat, judicial declaration, is unconstitutional itself. And that's one way to frame what Alito is doing. It, it does sound quite strong. I mean, obviously, and we're going to talk about this in a couple of minutes, but we sort of look back at this. And of course, we have our own constitution, as it were, in the Torah and the Shulchan Aruch, but even before that, and the, the Gonim and, and the codes, codes of the Rishonim. But we ultimately pin everything on the eternal worlds, the words that we say are immutable, are from God, and therefore are divine, and the contract in the way that God has indicated with us are built to interpret. There's already precedent of how that's, that happens. I know it's a long-winded way of saying it, but 
In other words, we look back and say, well, you know, they're, they're talking about a, a document and talking about a perception of how a society functions. We're talking about the will of a creator and what he wants from us and what he's given us an uh, indicator of. So I think for us, we take it a little more serious. Well, Rabbi, before, before we get to Jewish law, let, let's just sort of at least make the counter argument. There's certainly a kind of simplicity and straightforwardness to this point, which is, look, if you want new rights, get them into the Constitution. So the other side of this says a bunch of things. But one of them is like, look, there's lots of rights that are not in the Constitution that, you know, maybe, maybe aren't part of longstanding rights. So one example that comes up in this situation is contraception. So contraception is also not in the Constitution. And we'll talk about Alito's answer to this in a minute. Contraception is also not in the Constitution. Because contraception is a fairly new thing, you're going to be hard-pressed to find long-standing historical precedents that a government cannot prohibit it. And yet, I think there's little pressure to say that, that that is not a constitutional right. The right to marry someone of a different race, Loving versus Virginia, right? Also not historically protected, not really in the 14th Amendment, right? But would have to be derived out of that. Uh, the right not to be sterilized without consent. In other words, involuntary surgery, which is to say there's a list of other things that are unenumerated, which are generally thought to be settled constitutional rights, though they're not enumerated. Now, Alito has an answer to this because he recognizes all this. Alito's answer to this is that, and that a little bit shifts the argument to, to a different to a different plane, which is, yes, true, but none of those implicate the competing rights of another life or another potential life or however we want to characterize that. And therefore, kind of part B of Alito's argument is, even if you're not totally sold on the only way to get rights in is through this you know, historical recognition process, nevertheless, oduli mihas, that None of those other things involve the taking a life or, or potential life of another person. And therefore, that puts the abortion question on a different plane. And that's his answer to be mechalic between contraception and abortion, though neither of them are enumerated in the Constitution. That's clear. Though arguably, neither of them have deep roots in the history, although I do want to come back to that point as well, but they're really different on that issue. And that's the kind of guts of the Alito opinion, those two aspects, the sort of historical recognition of unenumerated rights part, and the, in halachic terms, the doche nefesh mipne nefesh, which exists only with respect to abortion and not with respect to these other rights. So what I was trying to say was that it's almost like there's a system that is trapping the American lawyers and judges and and politicians. And that system, as I said, is something that we know was created by, you know, whether the founding fathers were great or not. It's a system that that people have agreed to be part of. And yet, uh, as I said, when we look back at it, we say, well, you know, you know why are you, be, we, we are bound by this because humans need to be bound by a law. But if it's just based on history, and if it's just based on a, a process and a system, the way it was written, 
it does sound unfair and sometimes strange to have to submit to something that we know was just the best of the worst, as Benjamin Franklin said when he was talking about the final system of government that the Constitution created. He said, it's not a great system, but if it's practiced well and it's done properly, then it could work. Franklin said, it's messy and in some ways sloppy, this system of checks and balances and the way they've written it up. But let's, if people have fealty to it, and administer it well, then people can live by it. But they could have easily, and this is my point, have lived by something else. And therefore, I can understand the frustration of whether it's activists or thinkers saying, here we are bound by this obscure document that was the best they could come up with, which ignores human progress and thought and sort of has to imply almost godlike prescience for what the founders thought and what they meant. And that's why I say when we look at it, we sort of smirk a little bit and smile and say, well, at least in our confidence, we believe what we're doing is something by that higher power that understood everything between time and how things would change and gave us the document that we could live with forever. And that's what I was trying to get at before. And it so let's, let's try to give the, the different perspectives on that. So we can say this, to put it in, in yeshivish terms, the Kedusha of the Constitution. In other words, there is a kind of sanctification of the Constitution. And why should that be? I think in, in secular terms, we'd call this the dead hand of the past problem, right? So why does whatever they thought then influence us? So let's give like the two perspectives on this. So one, the more progressive one is, is that that's right, that that is obviously the starting place. Right. But there are other sources to look at for an emerging consensus on things. So, for example, do we look at popular culture? Do we look at surveys? Do we look at international law and what other countries do? Do we look at state and local laws and how they come out? These are ways in which one would sort of get a sense of how things are changing and say that at some point this has become woven into our culture and cannot be taken away by the government. That's roughly the kind of progressive vision of constitutionalism. We're in an ever emerging, perfecting democracy whose values are, are constantly in the process of improvement and the law needs to track that. And Brown v. Board would be a kind of lodestar of that. The kind of conservative response, which I think could be caducified, but let me try to give you the non-caducified way of thinking about this, which would say, look, you're right. The Constitution was a political compromise at a point in time and has no real inherent caducia. But here's the problem. These tools of kind of taking the temperature of the culture and where it is are subjective, right? Because I can tell a different story. For all these things, right? Few things are clear cut enough that we can like say, right? And particularly because we live in a divided society that has different narratives of what the law is, how it progresses, where we look. So comes the conservative judge and says, okay, liberal judge, you wrote up this beautiful opinion looking at international law and looking at you know, literature and culture and music and surveys. And now I'll show you an alternate canon. And me, Amar, hi, me, hi. And therefore, the best we can do is say, I don't know. And 
until the polity has come together enough to pass a constitutional amendment, which is an excruciatingly high bar, sort of Shev Valtasa. So I want to just pitch it where there is a, I agree, and there's a lot of language of Kedushification that comes around this. And there's certainly theories that almost speak that way in the divine. But I do think you can have a, a very deflationary view of the founding and still come to roughly the same point, which says, in a democracy, how should contested questions be solved? And the conservative answer is, well, not the courts, because they're unelected judges, but the popular sovereign, i.e. the legislature. Now, let me push back on that one more, which is, yeah, except the courts are always making law. So just this week, uh, there was a Supreme Court case about another leg or another limb of the campaign finance rules, in which in in 2002, Congress passed a law, the McCain-Feingold bill, basically instituting a whole regulation of campaign speech. And then the last 15 years, the court has been chopping away at that by saying, no, 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 speech means money. Right, the freedom of speech in the Constitution doesn't just mean speaking; it means money because money is speech. Now, that's a contested question too. Why do they get to decide? So the problem to me, or or, or one pushback, is that courts are always doing this inevitably. Right, when we say freedom of religion, something very important in our community, what does that mean? That has changed over time, and that has changed with the composition of the court. So to sort of say that the court sort of stands outside this and just lets these things get decided, to me, you'd have to contend with all the time where the court, so for example, the Voting Rights Act, uh, the Campaign Finance Act, right? The court has been very active in certain ways in the last 10, 15 years. But it sounds that you definitely believe, although he is considered a hallowed figure, like Scalia's approach, which I, I'm sure isn't, wasn't original with him. When I say original, I guess I, I mean that uh, in a double way of the original intent. And I know Amy Coney Barrett considers herself a, a student of Scalia because I think she, I think she clerked under Scalia yes, for a while. That You consider it a little bit strange, right? You consider that like a little bit of a, of, it's, it's like a maverick. It's almost like the Revodim theory of how to take apart a piece of Talmud. Uh, it's the opposite in a way, but it's sort of like, yeah, that's like an out there theory. Well, it's certainly not out there. So I, I think that, what Chaim Seyman thinks is not particularly important to his audience. I think if I can clarify the different points of view, I can do better work. So I think Scalia should be credited with popularizing the idea of originalism. You know, did he create it? I mean, no, but he certainly popularized it and he certainly put it in pithy, simple, straightforward language. And I I think he does deserve uh, credit for that. It may have once been an outlier, right? But it is certainly now not. I think you've got six justices on the Supreme Court that would say that, and to some degree, nine who understand that that's at least a factor you need to consider. So in that sense, you know, you can quibble a little bit how creative Scalia was. Was it always there? To some degree, it's a little both. But I think you can't really tell the story without him in the way that it captured the court, the Federalist Society, which is a group of conservative lawyers, and ultimately the way that they that the Republican Party made this into a voting issue 
the at the Senate level and at the presidential level. So these things uh, have had a tremendous import. I mean, I, I do think that it is at the very least, you could say it's a little bit more manipulable. So let's let's go to abortion for a moment and you'll begin to see where this gets sticky. So it seems to be that. So Blackstone, who is a, uh, a legal writer in the in the 1700s, very, very influential on the founding generation, you know, him and, and others going back, talk about the problem and use the word abortion, but from quickening. And quickening is is basically when the woman feels the fetus moving and that all of the regulation and criminalization of of abortion seems to be tied to the quickening. Now, there's never said that it's mutter, right, to abort before there. There are never laws saying that's okay, but there's a tradition that that's when we start criminalizing it. So is, how does that feature in? And now you begin to see why even if you adopt the historical test, the history is messy and what documents survive is messy. So one could make an argument that traditionally abortion was not criminalized until quickening. And then it's in the 19th century that you begin to see a movement to prohibit abortion earlier. So where does that fit in? Now you see, of course, the problem. Is there ever a law saying it's okay? No. Right. And that, I think, is important for people to just you know, who are observing this and listening to it to understand that there was a, a movement in the 19th century, a fundamentalist movement that sort of pushed things in a much more, what we would say, Bible-thumping, religious way than they were at the time the Constitution was written. And, and maybe some of it was you know, part of the immigration of who was coming to America in the beginning of the 19th century. And some of it was really, you sort of alluded to, a response to the horrible tragedies of the Civil War. But there was a strengthening of religious fervor that its fingerprints are recognizable in the history of the United States in the 19th century, which perhaps was not true, uh, you know, by the deists era who founded the right. country. And, and even just think about it as a religion, right? So the, this, I'm, I'm a little bit skating at the edge of my skis here, but it's not clear that Protestants thought of this as a fundamentally religious question until later. So the, the point is that even if you take this sort of historical test, you then get into the question of historical interpretation and historical interpretation over time. And, you know, at some sense, you're asking, like, you know, what would James Madison's favorite cable TV channel be? Which is, right, you're, you're sort of asking things, I don't think this is so true about abortion, but, but of other things that fit into this mold, and it becomes a little bit of a mess. To take another example, when it comes to the gun rights case, so, of course, this is contested, but there's at least a very strong historical argument that this was tied to militias and not individual gun ownership. And, the, you know, the Supreme Court in a five to four decision did not adopt that history, but adopted a different history. And now you get to, so, okay, how much, you know, if the history is so debatable on this, like, what is that telling you? So I think you can't get away from the fact that the judges are making law. And what we really have is when they make law you like, you say, great, Baruch Hashem. And when they make law you hate, you say they're making it up in Masher Badul Belibam. And I wish I could tell you a more optimistic story, but certainly at the types of issues that wind up in contested Supreme Court decisions, I think that's largely where it's at. Before we get into the 
obviously, you know, you teach Jewish law, and this is something which I know you have ideas and opinions about, and as as any important person in this area would. But before we get into that, look into your, sorry for using this term, look into your crystal ball for a second. As this opinion, let's say it's uh, it's going to pass, it's going to be a five to four majority. What do you predict the ramifications are in the greater society? Do you, could, do you see this is going to um, change things from a religious perspective, uh, strengthening a certain side and... Is this just going to be all hell breaking loose? Like we, the rumblings already sort of indicate that this is, you know, they, they've got their pitchforks out on both sides. Do you see this being good for the country? What do you predict will be happening? So they've had their pitchforks out on both sides on this issue for a very long time. So let's start there. All right. So with the obvious caveat that uh, my crystal ball is not very good, I think it's reasonable to believe that. At the very least, the Mississippi law, which is at the center of this case, will be upheld. And maybe to come back a little bit to to kind of court styles and rationales. So the Alito opinion is very blunt in the sense of Roe was wrong. It was always wrong. We're overturning it. Nothing about it. John Roberts, the chief justice in general, and especially here, says, you know, I like three moves, right? I'll get to where you want to go but I don't like to do it all at once. He's an incrementalist and he doesn't like overturning precedents. He likes kind of narrow distinguishing. And then, you know, after three narrow distinguishes, you say it has effectively been overruled. And that's clearly where he wants to go, both as a stylistic matter and per the leaks to the press uh, here specifically. So I think one question is, I think there's almost no question that the Mississippi law at issue will be upheld. I think the question is, will it be upheld in the way Alito writes? Basically, there is no more constitutional protection for abortions. Or will it be upheld with Roberts, maybe Kavanaugh, probably, and the three liberals in kind of a split fractured mess that the basic holding is, okay, the Mississippi law is fine. But beyond that, you know, there's going to be a lot of confusion underneath. I don't know which one of those two is going to happen. I'd be surprised if it's not one of those two. Beyond that, because it's easier to answer your question on the on the assumption that the Alito law goes into effect. In other words, the Alito opinion. In other words, that Roe is just overruled. So what's next? So I think we're going to see a big, big split. You're going to see blue states, this has already happened, go and codify Roe, or maybe even something more permissive than Roe, into their state laws. I think you're seeing that in California, you're going to see it in New York, you're going to see that in blue states. In red states, you're going to see the opposite move. And you're going to start to see questions of, okay, can we criminalize not only abortion in our state, I think that's a given, and then, you know, there'll be different things. Are there going to be exceptions for rape and incest or health of the mother or not? My guess is that will vary. You know, more purple states will probably have some carve outs, more red states, probably not. But then you're going to go to like the second and third order questions. So if let's say I'm in Texas, which let's say has an absolute ban, can Texas also criminalize me going to New York or a woman going to New York to get an abortion? Right. What about various day after pills? Right. Because early term abortions are now largely done by a medicine, as I understand it. 
So are they going to criminalize importing those into the state? Now go the other way. What about a movement to not only say abortion is not constitutionally protected, but they might call you know fetal life bills, saying that one becomes a full person at conception. And then you can even push that to make that constitutional law. In other words, to say that the Constitution's protection of life and liberty begins at conception. So I don't think this ends anything. It certainly changes the arc and changes the type of debates. But the idea that, oh, we've returned road to the states and now it won't be a political hot potato. I don't think anybody believes that. And do you think that it's going to empower the religious understanding of, of society more? Is it going to bring, like we, we have talked about, I don't know if we've had the conversation time between us, but I know in, in our world, we've talked about, are, is, are we better in an America that displays its religion in a more public way? Or are we better in a more secular America? You know, what's better for the Jews, so to speak? Right. So that's, that's a hard question to answer. And Shockingly, Jews disagree on this. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but do you see that this is like a move towards, yes, we're going back to a little, we can be more open and say, yes, a religious value is out there, whether it was prayer in schools or other things, as you know, the Babacher Rebbe was fighting for and, and other things like that. And oh, we're, we're, we're better in a country that as religious as they are on Sunday, they're going to respect us more on Saturday than a country that is, uh, feels religion is a noxious element and that it's just something that would be tolerated. But a country that embraces a viewpoint, although we would call it maybe Avodah is still better for us. And do you see this, a movement towards a more accepting a religious viewpoint in the country or not? I would say as follows. What has happened, and I think this is bad, okay, but this is what has happened. What has happened, and this is not new, but I think it's clearly accelerated over the last decade or so, is that in a case like this, right, because the religious value, the pro-life value, we'll call that a religious value. We can talk about how much sense that makes from a Jewish perspective, but clearly from a Christian perspective, is so entwined in a political movement and a political party and in opposition to that political movement and political party. It's hard to see how this transcends the culture wars but merely becomes another flashpoint in them. So what is happening is that religion is increasingly becoming part of the things that divides the parties in the culture. Rather, you go back 50 years ago, religion was not the things that divided the parties in the culture. I think that's clearly happening. Uh, And abortion is sort of evidence of that rather than I think causing that. Now, is that good or bad? I would say it's bad because I think the, the best way to guarantee something in the culture is to make it part of the background and part of a bipartisan consensus. Once something becomes part of the a partisan move, so then inevitably, right, half the country loves it and half the country hates it. Now, you could say, all right, that's the reality. Let's go with the half the country that loves it. And I think that's largely been the position of the firm world, broadly defined. But what that means is that you're going to have a very polarized view of religion uh, rather than a cross-cultural consensus. And, you know, that leads to some opportunities and some challenges. So uh, it's a great answer. 
and you're right, you can't, you know, part of what we've been talking about is being able to turn back the wheels of time and how difficult that is. And, you know, I guess I've been hearing for so long people saying, let's go, and I'm not talking about making America great, but let's go back to the way things were. Let's rediscover, you know, some of the, the salt of the earth, positivity of, of, of that world that was post-World War II. But, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. I always find it interesting when, when Jews, particularly from Jews, right? The emergence of from Jews as accepted members of elite American society is younger than we are. Sure. Well, you've talked about that, you know, in, in our previous conversations. That's been sort of that's been sort of your, your your favorite topic in many ways. Right. But but in other words, like I understand this, but but I'm always like, really, you want to go into a world where forget about wearing a yarmulke, having a Jewish name in a law firm was was a death knell, right? <laughs> where wearing a yarmulke was just inconceivable. So the answer is, of course, is no, no one wants to go back to that. But like I think what's hard to unravel is how these things are connected, right? That there was clearly a dominant Christian culture and that Jews were outside of it and were outsiders. And what has happened now is a scrambling of the category where it's not Christian, not Christian, but more like religious and secular. And in some sense, that has made visible Jews um, much more prominent. To me, to use a movie reference that you might like or not, Sidney Lumet made a film called Q&A I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's a very interesting film. <laughs> Whenever I speak to someone about film, uh, they say, well, yeah, I don't have time. I'm not into it. But we know that it's a barometer the same way many of the things you mentioned today, whether it's a scholarly tome written about a time or it's a, a newspaper reportage or a survey. Films are, in a way, a, uh, a view into where society is going, especially if the film made money and it was popular. This film, I think, you know, was made by a Jewish director, Sidney Lumet. And there's a, a scene in the film where the mayor is grappling with some major issue. And the characters that he turns to, one of them is prominently wearing a yarmulke. And nothing is made of it. The point was, I think it's the first time in a film that a character walks in with a yarmulke. And he never has to ask for a bagel. And he doesn't necessarily, you know, have to have an annoying Jewish accent. It is what it is. Okay, but let me push. When when the Hasidic female judge uh, in Brooklyn became a judge, every Jewish paper and every Jewish thing made a tremendously big deal about. <laughs> By the way, legit, right? So I'm gonna push back. On, Jews do this all the time. Can you believe it? An Israeli did this. A Jew did this. Come on. It bothers me. Okay, but I think people do this. Fine, get over it. Every time an Israeli got a bronze medal, my social media feed couldn't help itself. But, okay, good. Yeah, which I think is a testament to a little bit of a, a small-mindedness and, a, and an inability to see beyond. Maybe, but I can say you can take different positions on that, but I'm not going to let someone say Jews can do it, but other people can't. Uh, let's wrap this up. And I know this is a bad way to talk because this should really be part two of, of and, and it's really been enlightening to hear uh, the ideas really, which I thought were well-trod and understood. You really put it, I think, in, in a cogent manner that anybody, even a frazzled fellow can comprehend. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, one of the other things you do in your teaching, I mean, this is you teach Jewish law and this has, I think, elicited across the board, re-examining the Jewish sources, the Torah sources, the Lachim sources, 
for uh, hapolas ubrim or however, whatever term you want to use for it, for abortion. First, in your teaching of Jewish law, have you spoken about it in class? Have you, has this spurred your students to ask you or have you decided to give a couple of shiurim, as it were, in this area? And uh, even if not, hold forth, my friend. Yeah. As you said, in the past month or so, seemingly any person who is Jewish in any way, shape, or form has understood that it must hold forth on the Jewish view on abortion, which, you know, if one wants to spin positive, they say there's more Talmud Torah. I teach a Jewish law class in an American law school, and one is almost expected that abortion will be part of that, which is its own interesting question. The reason for that is that Abortion is thought to be a very important law and religion issue. And, well, Jewish law is in one way or another a law and religion class. Therefore, you must talk about it. I would say that there were actually many years I didn't teach it because I couldn't figure out how I wanted to do it. Until I figured out that what I'm going to do it is to show um, the different frameworks to assess this question. And what I do is I teach, you know, we spend about an hour with you know, the seven or eight main sources on the topic, you know, obviously boiled down and simplified for non-Jewish law students with no Hebrew background. But, you know, we spend an hour and a half or so, or one session basically learning those sources uh, in translation. And then I split them up and I say, okay, you guys in the class need to make the argument that Jewish law supports pro-life. And you guys on this side of the class need to make the argument that Jewish law supports poor choice. And now, and then I give them half an hour to like, you know, talk with their friends and come up with like their talk. And it's great because they immediately get frustrated because they can't quite do it, right? Because A, the sources point in different directions and B, like, well, it doesn't really think in either of these terms. And that to me is the point of this, which is to say, okay, we have a very American law framing of this question. And why should we assume that Jewish law adopts it, right? That, that effectively, you know, the extreme pro-choice view is that a woman has unfettered rights to her body up until the point of, and we could leave that line blank for right now. And, um, you know, the, the sort of extreme pro-life view, certainly as, as articulated by the Catholics, is that life begins at conception and life is life is life. And I think there's no way to square halacha with that. Uh, and then to say, okay, well, what do you see here, right? So, and here I think that the answer is it's, it's, it's neither of these. It certainly does not agree that there's unfettered rights to the body of women or men. You can't have a tattoo, man or woman. And, and the Gemara that recently popped up in the Dafyomi, which of course was relevant to this issue, where the Gemara talked about Kodememyo, Maya Baalmahu. I mean, you can't get more dismissive than Maya Baalma. I mean, that... <laughs> that's right. Maya Baalma is, that's right. We talked before when we were talking about this program. And before you get to the Rishonim and the Achronim and mistakes or Tosophers that might have crept into them, Maya Balma is a very strong statement about at least Kodemar Boemio. That's certainly right. And then what's interesting then is that, you know, if you believe the public policy polling, that the halachic framework in some ways matches up to many people's intuition. 
that more easy to have an abortion the earlier you are, more difficult to have it at, at the end, and then some debate as to what factors are relevant. And then I show them what the what happens in, in Medina Israel, in the state of Israel, which I tell them they don't believe me, is not run according to Jewish law. And, and I said, its criteria are not Jewish law, but here's what happens in Israel. So in Israel, and again, if one of your listeners corrects a factual mistake, I'll take it. I'm not an expert here. But my understanding is that, now remember, in Israel, you have a nationalized healthcare system. So the question of the ability and who's paying for it are all connected. But if you want to get an abortion, if a woman needs to get an abortion and for the national healthcare, the Betuch will need to pay for it, she must go before a vad, a vada, before a, a committee comprised of I believe, uh, mental health professionals and, and medical professionals. And the woman explains her reasons. And they have criteria. Some are automatically granted or almost automatically. Some, it depends on the assessment, et cetera. That's up until a certain point in the pregnancy. At a certain later point in the pregnancy, you have to go to a vadat al, a sort of more expanded, maybe more certainly reviewing vada. To me, there's like a very halachic structure to this. In other words, here's what I try to tell my students before we get into any halachic details, which is, look, this is not my body, my choice. This is not life begins at conception. This is, hmm, this is serious. Let's try to assess the situation and see if the thing is warranted, right? So again, I do not want to claim that it's halachic or that they use halachic criteria, but I do want to say, as opposed to the American debate, the Israeli structure has a very halachic structure to it. Now, from what I understand, certainly in the early stages, the permission rates are very high. In other words, if a woman has come to the point where she needs to go before the Vada and ask the Vada, they tend to grant it liberally, is my understanding. And I assume that as, as it gets later in the pregnancy, that gets a little bit more complex. But the point is that for all the things that our brothers and sisters in Israel argue about, and there are many, abortion is not a particularly tense topic in Eretz Israel. They have other things to fight and hate each other about. That's interesting because, you know, my ear is obviously to the, uh, to the terra firma of the United States. But, you know, we do live in a society where we hear from everywhere and ideas from everywhere and everything that comes from everywhere. I, I always hear the charge against how terrible the secular state is. And I always hear this as one of the primary aspects of how terrible it is. Look at the abortion rates. Look what they're allowing. How can you throw in with the Zionists? How can you throw in with the government? Look what the government does. So I do hear that, those voices. Maybe they're primarily people here in the United States that are saying it. Uh, no, I don't want to say that, but I, I don't think you could compare it to in other words, it is not a voting issue for anyone. It's almost considered as, as a way. Yeah, of course, the Medina is terrible. You know, look what they do. Right. Right. So, again, I don't want to say that it is not right. But I'm saying if you think of what drives Israeli elections, you would not. Have I agree with you. In other words, it's almost like a given that you're not going to change it. And it's just another terrible thing that we have to tisk tisk about as opposed to. Now we're going to change the government. I mean, Bennett, and even when, you know, Bennett came to power, a person who wears the Amic and others, that wasn't part of his platform, was it? Exactly. Israeli elections are about the Arab-Palestinian issue, uh, the Rabbanut, conversions, right? Meaning even if we enter in the law and religion space, Giyur and Kashrut 
and Ishut are the issues that are discussed there. And again, abortion is there. I don't want to pretend it, but it's second or third order. Right? No, and there's a certain does not occupy the cultural space, even in the law and religion framework that it does uh, in the United States. And by the way, that's true of most countries that are not the United States, right? <laughs> Every democracy has the things it fights about. Uh, I think the United States is somewhat unique in abortion being so central to that fight. That's a very strong point, especially is that it, when we aren't saying that the United States is the most religious of countries, but the, but it has it, its prominence here is uh, you know, Trump's <laughs> Trump's the wrong word, but uh, many many other points that we would say are, are just as important. Uh, you know, let's let's end here with what's interesting point that you made to me in the conversation that we had uh, last week that you found it surprising that based on who you spoke with what would be considered the standard opinion on the halacha of how to treat abortion and you framed it is Rav Moshe the majority opinion or is the Tzitz Eliezer and and, and others uh, the majority or most standard opinion and Rav Moshe is the maverick and I think you mentioned to me that you found it interesting that depending on which Rav or which person you spoke to, some people said Rav Moshe is the, the Machmir, although he's not aligned with the Catholics. Uh, he definitely considers it an aspect of, of Ritzicha and therefore is much more prohibitive. And the Tzitzeliezer, of course, has uh, quite a, a, an enumerated tshuva that he brings a, a wealth of sources backing him up in terms of other earlier poskim that are in his camp allowing abortion even for much less than the physical welfare of the mother, but for many emotional health reasons as well. Yeah, so machlokas and halacha seems to be not a surprise and, and part and parcel of, of what we do. I found it somewhat frustrating, but also telling, and I'll get to that in a second, that exactly what you said, that not only is there a machlokas between, call it, I think the easiest way is to think about it between Rav Moshe and the Tzitzeliezer, though one could say lema ketanai in some sense, and one could say lema kebasrai in some sense, but you know they each have published chuvas, and they're roughly contemporaries of each other, and they're legit bar pultas of each other. So I think that's a good way to frame it. Okay, so that machlokas is, but then depending who you ask, I've heard again only in the past few weeks. On online or in podcasts or in writing, that everybody knows that Rav Moshe is the mainstream opinion that Tzitzel is Das Yachid, and everybody knows that the Tzitzel is the mainstream opinion and Rav Moshe is Das Yachid. And I'm like, okay, that shouldn't happen, right? Um, meaning, uh, you know, simple machlokas uh, is, is regular, but, but sort of an inability, a machlokas about the extent of the machlokas maybe just tells you how deep the machlokas is. The one thing I would press here. And I hope to write a book about this one day, not about abortion, but about what do we mean by halacha in the following sense. And there might be a chapter on abortion, but on this issue, not on whether abortion is much or us, or nobody cares what Chaim Sam thinks about that, nor should they. But this question. So abortion is, I think, unusual in the following sense. There are, as you said, there's a motion that sits on the answer. Okay. And then there are recorded and unrecorded stories that fall in the middle. I believe you showed me, right, from the Ben Ishchai, who someone asks him, and he quotes earlier Achronim 
basically suggesting that it's mutter, but he says, but I'm not giving an opinion. Like, like what is that? Like, what other chuvas are answered that way? It is reported, and again, that Rav Shlomo Zalman agreed more with Rav Maisha, but it is reported that when he was asked, at least in a particular instance, he said, go ask the Tzitzelias. Now again, if someone asks Rav Shlomo Zalman, can I murder this person, he does not say, go ask somebody else. He says, no. Can I drive on Shabbos? He says, no. So you see here that there's this sort of like, well, maybe publicly we say it's no, but when an actual Shila is asked, it looks different. And this is another thing that I do with my students, my non-Jewish students who don't really have a dog in the halachic fight about this is I say, I think part of what happens is that there's a public stance, which is generally pro-life or certainly culturally accords with that movement. And then there's a sense that when certain circumstances come up, right, and it's not anything, it's certainly not my body, my choice, certainly not that, but, you know, this stuff in the middle that if one knows how to frame the question and who to ask, the practiced halacha is quite different on the ground. Uh, Avital Shizek Goldschmidt wrote an article in the forward a number of years ago, basically collecting stories of women all over the map that tells a more complex story than you know you might sometimes officially hear. What I have fun with my students is asking them whether that's a good system or a bad system. In other words, is it good to have a public stance and a quieter private stance or not? And they have they have a fun time debating it. So to some degree, I'll just end with, this is a part I might write a book about, which is, what do we mean by halacha? Do we mean what's printed in the svarim? And do we mean what people do? And what people do, I don't mean just that they do it midinafshe, but what people do with consultation of halachic authorities. Right. Well, you have written, of course, a book that I know is uh, is fascinating and interesting on halachas. This would, I guess, would be a companion. It would be very different. The book I wrote is, is about a totally different way of thinking. About it. I understand. But this, is this I think, is where I want to go. Uh, well, we're, we're looking forward to it. I would just say, you know, I mean, Rav Salvatric wrote not only the book Ish but he writes in a number of his essays how messy halacha is, how it isn't meant to, as much as you conceive of it in certain pristine, objective classifications of Gavra, Hefza, Siba, Mesovev, and however you, you, you're thinking about it, you know that that bridge into life is always going to be messy, and it's always going to depend on who's wielding the tools and what they're after. I mean, he spoke about the reality that you know, he said that it's almost like at the time, the 1950s, when he wrote this, he says it's, it should be like Sputnik. It should be like a satellite that you have your energies, your passion that gets it into space. Otherwise, you wouldn't want to invest the monies into it. But once it gets into space, then there's an orbit that's unchanging. And he feels that's the template of what a post should be. Yes, I, I need to roll up my sleeves and get involved in it. But once I'm in that world, then that should be pure. And the psak, whether you like it or not, <laughs> is a psak that's based on a truth. But as you know, that is Rav Salvechik's template of what a posik should be. I think you're right. That's not what happens. And 
as you say, let's get a heter for this. Let's find someone who's even in the abortion area. And I, I don't want to say their names here out loud, but there are Rabbanim that I know who are considered Rabbanim Chashuvim Ma'od that he's the one to go to. Again, my role here is less to talk about the halachas of abortion, but as a scholar of the halachic system, that structure is very interesting to me because it doesn't exist in a million places. That's not the way we do Hilchah Shabbos. There's certain areas where it happens like this, and I think that's worth thinking about. Well, Rav Chaim, thank you for uncovering the tip of this iceberg and I think allowing it to gleam and give us perhaps some light in the fog. <laughs> I don't have any more Titanic Mishalov to go through, and hopefully we are headed for things in a positive way, definitely an interesting way. And I know that you know, I, I take heart in your delight and interest in what's going on in the world. And I'm happy you're out there being the observant Jew that you are. And we will hopefully catch you more than once a year because it's always great whenever we talk. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 